Hi everyone, welcome to the Fancy Lab Coat Guild. Today you're going to hear a recording of an AMA hosted on April 20th, 2023 with Dr. Philip Kyriakakis, a senior scientist in optogenetics, that's molecular light switches, over at Stanford University. This episode is sponsored by SciFind.io, the expert network for scientific troubleshooting. Be mindful that it is a live conversation and so has a format that can involve the audience. We're going to dive right into it. Enjoy the AMA. Quick intro um, to what we're doing today. Obviously, we're hosting this AMA, but I want to introduce um, kind of our platform, what we're about. Basically, SciFind is an expert network for scientists who try to share information beyond the publication. So if you run into troubleshooting problems on experiments or look for equipment hacks, you can kind of check out the communities we have, like genetic engineering, and, and check it out. So. We answer questions and we're lucky to have a passionate community of scientists who kind of promote this open access troubleshooting. Uh, before we start this AMA, uh, we're kind of changing the format a little bit. So instead of asking questions directly over voice chat, you can actually type them into the chat on the side and I'll be moderating it and posing them to our speaker directly. Uh, it is recorded and afterwards we, uh, we post it. So you can kind of listen to this chat after and if we have some time, we also hang out and things of that nature. So without further ado, everyone, um, let's prepare for a shockingly delightful introduction uh, to today's guest, Dr. Philip Kyriakakis. Uh, I like to call him the light bringer because he works with molecular light switches, shocker. Um, and to be honest, like I actually have to hold myself back because of all the light puns that are possible. And I love, uh, I love puns, don't kill me. You can follow him on Twitter as Break Liquid, or which honestly is such an awesome name. I don't know how you managed to get that. <laughs> and uh, his sci-fi profile as well, where he might be updating it with some posts in the upcoming weeks. He's been flipping the switch on the world of optogenetics since his humble beginnings at UMass Boston, and has been an illuminating force in the field ever since. After spending some time at UC San Diego, he now brightens the halls of Stanford as a senior research scientist. Uh, Dr. Kirikakis is an incredibly thoughtful and curious person with a ton of scientific breadth in his expertise. I remember when we first spoke a couple of weeks ago, he instantly put a smile on my face. I think you guys will also be pleasantly surprised, just like a genuinely happy person. So let's give a warm, or should I say glowing welcome to Dr. Philip Kyriakakis. Howdy. Thank you, thank you. Uh, if you're curious about the, the screen name thing, I actually picked it to, I tried finding two words that don't go together so that it won't be used in any other like setting. Um, and there has been two funny ways they've been misinterpreted. And one is like at the car mechanic, I was like spelling it, or I was like, break liquid. And he's like, B-R-A-K-E. And I'm like, no, 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 not that kind of break, you know? And then I went into Hawaii. I, the guy was like, oh, break liquid, you know, like surfing. And I'm like, no, it's just two words that don't go together. <laughs> I never thought of that. But if I did, I, I would have picked it for that reason, too. It's kind of cool. Yeah, in my mind, I thought like, this is just so corny, but I imagine like a pipette tip and the first moment that the like surface tension reveals the droplet, like uh, under the tip is what's in my imagination. <laughs> That's awesome. Um, I think I picked this, the username before I ever used a pipette. 
<laughs> oh my god. Um, so yeah, why don't we start off um, just kind of something simple, you know, guys, feel free to ask questions in the chat as we go. I can ask them while we talk. So otherwise, I'll kind of keep the conversation going. But to start, you know, what first got you interested in biology and pursuing it? What were you like as a kid, like your first fascinations with it? Um, I think my first fascinations with science in general weren't biofocus because um, my father used to have a like a electronics room I guess you could call it where we like fix certain things get like f broken microwaves and um, fix them or whatever we could find at this I call it a dump but it's actually where you would uh, like put electronic waste um, so I really like the idea of like fixing or building things um, then I also like had a, this van that like basically wasn't working for a couple of years just sitting in my driveway and before I had my license I like took it apart like very slowly over months and like fixed it and like um, I think I just liked science in high school like I didn't really care about my other classes very much and uh, chemistry and biology were really interesting to me and I got good grades in those so um, that was like uh, I want to say that like, motivating but actually Considering what I did next, that doesn't totally make sense. Um, because I didn't go to college after high school. I just, um, I don't know what you could say. I worked in the mall and, like, had fun. <laughs> and, like, went to raves and uh, other stuff. Um, and then I went to community college. And that's when, like, I took biology and chemistry again. And, uh, again, I really just liked those. And I got good grades in those classes. And I kind of felt at that point like, oh, like this is like really my thing. Like I, I'm doing really well. I can see how it could lead to getting a good job compared to working in the mall. Um, not that there's anything wrong with working in the mall if you want it, if you like that. But like I, I found it really difficult and um, like, I don't know. It was like I didn't like doing customer service, put it that way. And um yeah, so then I like worked at a at BD Biosciences, um, just just cool because you're doing really high tech stuff in the clean room. But it was actually more like a factory job, like pipetting onto onto surfaces, and um, definitely better prospects after community college than before. But I kind of felt like I wanted to do something more than that. Um, so that's when I decided to go to a four year school or you know finish my bachelor's degree. Um, and then I also worked in a lab there. I spent a lot of my time doing research, not just taking classes. And that was like a very natural takeoff then to go to grad school um, because I was kind of doing, you know, classwork and research, which is basically like grad school. But I didn't really know what I was going to do after that. Yeah, so it was a very gradual process for me to kind of get into biology. Definitely not a straight straight line either. <laughs> Yeah, I think that's that. It's kind of it's kind of fun because I have a similar perspective. Um, I like worked in a little like convenience store and was like, I can't do this. So the moment I the moment I uh, got into school, I'd spent all my time just trying to get in access into labs, um, which I did. So you gotta get your hands dirty, eh? Yeah, yeah. Uh, and um, I hope I got sucked into it. You know, it's it's really. Uh, and a lot of things didn't work um, 
so it wasn't motivating in the sense that like things just snap together but like it's almost like oh it didn't work like i need to figure it out you know so you never want to stop doing it i'd like to know um so first of all how did you end up getting into this like specifically the field of optogenetics which actually you should define first before we get into it um but yeah kind of how'd you uh how'd you find your way in there yeah, so I actually started working on it when I was an undergrad, um, but a uh, little bit of context, like I, I um, so I started two projects um, when I was an undergrad first, so one was just developing an antibody, and that was like, again, like I said, it was really hard, the protein I needed was really insoluble, and then um, I got that to work, and then I did, worked on this other project, and then I finished that, um, and then like. I got into grad school, but I, like, I still had, I don't know, um, I think at that point, doing the math in my head, like six, yeah, six months left before starting grad school. So my boss just kind of let me um, like work on whatever I wanted um, within reason. And I had the idea that like, I really like kind of engineering. Um, UMass Boston doesn't have any engineering. Um, and I like biology. And like, how do I combine that? And I was thinking about tissue engineering and I thought I really like imaging and these things were kind of, I don't know, very desperate things. And then I was like, you know, it'd be really cool to control cells with light because then you could like laser print, you know, a tissue or something like that with super high precision. Um, and so I talked with my advisor about this, uh, Alexei Varoxa, and he's like, Oh yeah, maybe we could do something like that. Um, but if you look back in two thousand seven, there was only thirteen papers with the word optogenetics in it. Um, and then the this paper that we ended up uh, basing our stuff on actually didn't have the word optogenetics in it because it was before optogenetics. Um, and basically, it was this plant biologist uh, Peter Quayle who was studying these two proteins that interact in a light-dependent way, phytochromes, and that's how uh, plants know whether they're in the shade or not, or whether it's day or night. Um, and he did that by controlling a gene, uh, LACZ, so the cells will turn blue if they're interacting or not interacting. So it's like a light-switchable promoter. Um, so, in fact, before the optogenetics, where you're controlling neural activity with light, before that was even published, uh, three years before, this paper was published where they're controlling bioactivity, um, in this case transcription, um, using red and far red light. So um, we wanted to do that uh, in animal cells, and th so the original publication was in yeast, because they were doing yeast to hybrid assay, uh, and no one had done that in animal cells yet. Um, it had been done in bacteria. Uh, so I started working on that. Um, tried to get the enzymes that produce the chromophore in animal cells. Um, that part didn't work. But I think actually I got it to work uh, in animal cells. I actually had to purify this chromophore from spirulina or cyanobacteria. And um, so it was really weird, like now you can buy it. But back then I had to purify it um, using like organic uh, solvents and all this stuff, add it to the cells. And I, I worked like until a few days before moving to California from Boston because I had to develop this Western blot to like see if my experiment worked. And I got it to work 
and then I actually had to stop working on it because I moved to California and um, start grad school. So I shelved it for a while and I tried to find labs that were interested in working on it. Um, some had like some interest, but they all have their own research going on. Um, and so they're not going to want to take a PhD student just to work on their own project, right? They might not have funding for that, so on and so forth. Um, yeah, so I like I kind of found a lab that was kind of interested in it, but then it didn't work out. Um, and then uh, like when I was almost done with my PhD, I found a lab in my building who uh, was interested in working on it. So like I put it down during my PhD and then kind of got back to it during my postdoc. I've been working on it for a while, but like not continuously. There was like, I would say four or five years where I didn't work on it before I actually got to really um, like work on it full time. Oh, damn. I mean, so across the, across the spectrum, I'm curious, like obviously you have quite a lot of breadth of working with different models and systems. Um, I guess, what sort of tools do you currently or back then um, use on the daily? Like what are some of your favorite, like, um, what are some of your favorite tools to kind of use lifesavers, hacks with them that you are very happy to discover? Um, I would say, uh, well, I, I, I worked in a very interdisciplinary lab. And um, as I mentioned, I kind of started off fixing some electronics, but I never really knew much about how they worked outside of like, you know, the class, like physics class and stuff. And um one thing, so I always felt like I didn't know how to like build LEDs and stuff, but we needed that to do our experiments. We wanted to really quantify how much light we needed and, and all this stuff. So people in the, in the lab that were electrical engineers by training were doing all that and then graduating. And I was like, okay, this is like the time where I need to learn it because if not, they're going to be gone. And like, you know, I don't know what's going to happen. So picking up this like interdisciplinary, um, these, I would say not interdisciplinary skills that are were outside of my normal training. Um, in this case, it was electronics. Um, it's kind of unusual for have someone who's a biochemist and or biologist go towards more of the engineering and electronics. It's very common for it to go the other direction. Um, so I know this doesn't directly answer the question, but in terms of biotechniques, but I think um, I like the idea of taking a risk and and slowing things down to learn something very different. Um, you know, it doesn't always pay off right away and it may not be obvious how it's gonna pay off. Um, but I think that was definitely a good decision. And I kind of still do that stuff now, like with 3D printing, um, tried learning coding, I never gave up, but it just never really got good at it. Um, the one technique that I use I want to say not daily, but like very routinely that I, um, I know a lot of people don't use is uh, electroporation. So I electroporate everything. I don't transform the normal way. And it's just, I don't know. I love it. And it, I have a, I got a free electroporator, uh, like hand me down and, um, it makes it really easy to make competent cells and I can transform basically anything. Um, and uh, it's really easy to make competent cells to electroporate. Um, so I, I, I find that to be like very satisfying. It, it makes my workflows easier. Um, 
Yeah, a little bit of uh, electric ele electric torture for the cells. Yeah. <laughs> All good. Um, I actually wanted to know about, um, you were working with uh, Sebastian, a tiny green cell on Twitter, guys. On a, is, Was that a bioreactor, if I'm not mistaken? Yeah, yeah so, um, you know, I said I worked with a little bit with electronics, and, and one way I think that pays off is, like, I'm not really ever going to be the expert on that, but it, it kind of gives me some idea of, like, what's feasible or not, or, like, things like that, and... Um, and maybe that makes me a better collaborator with someone like Sebastian. So he's, uh, you know, anyone who knows him knows he's very self-taught on all these things. And like, um, I don't know, I, I've seen his posts on Twitter and, and kind of little things that uh, here and there that he posts about automating things or making devices. And uh, I got this grant to build this um, evolution device. And the device is like, ten thousand dollars in parts or something like that um but it was during covid when the supply chain stuff really really took effect uh and uh i asked i talked to sebastian about uh building it and um it was just like impossible to get some of the parts and some of the parts were like uh i don't know like it looked like different people designed different parts of it and it made it really hard in a lot of ways to kind of put it together and then Sebastian had already built, like, I would say his own versions of different parts of that machine. So at some point he's like, can I just, like, build one from scratch? And I was like, sure, you know, like, my little knowledge about that kind of gave me the confidence, like, I think you could do that. It's, you, you have a, a lot of these stuff already worked out. And we like the idea of making stuff cheaper and open source. Um, so, yeah, so he... Uh, I think he was already working on some way to like measure the OD of cells, for example, in a, some kind of culture, um, and uh, like build the, using a fan to with magnets on it to mix the culture, um, doing stuff with Arduino. Um, so he already had some of these building blocks, and basically he needed to put those together along with other things like LEDs and, and um, you know a heating pad and. A, thermistor to regulate the temperature um, and then over many iterations where you go back and forth uh, he built this really cool device which um, you know the fancy version of it is under $300 and instead of like the $10,000 and it's nice because we built it and it's mostly 3D printed so like if anything breaks or we want to expand on it we can do that um, yeah, so that I think that was a really great decision, and it may be slower than getting something off the shelf, but I, I, I like the idea of customizing it, and I think it's going to be more adoptable for people um, to use it in their own research as well. Yeah, I like the modularity of something like that, and obviously cost-effective. Uh, I'm always curious, like definitely seeing people like Sebastian or seeing this kind of like more hands-on work makes me very hopeful about more, I guess, like kind of consumer facing science maybe you know at some point coding became accessible to people once computers became accessible so um there's something fun in knowing that you can just get your hands dirty and do things like that cheaply scientifically yeah and you know the 300 dollars i mentioned is really like you building one device uh for the first time and i mean we went through many iterations but 
my point is that it's not like we bought the parts in bulk. At, you know, it's just the price if you buy it. And um, uh, those things tend to go down uh, with time. You know, our, actually, the, the motors we use is the most expensive part. They're $45 each, and I have four of them mm -hmm. on mine. So it's uh, 180 of the 300 bucks is actually just the motors. Uh, but they're very high-quality, accurate motors. Um, and not everyone needs four of them. So it's it's a very very affordable um, system, uh, yeah. You know, we spent a lot of money developing it um, compared to like what it might seem, but like um, I think that it, because it's going to help a lot of other people, it's not just something I can use in my lab. It was definitely a great investment, and um, yeah, I, I love doing that kind of stuff. I think it has a lot of value, and uh, and it's going to work really great for for what I'm doing in my lab as well, of course. Oh yeah, it's good to it's good to kind of mix those two. It's like having a hobby that also happens to benefit uh, the space. I think for, I like we had Minya last week and like for her it's photography. And in your case, it's kind of this electrical engineering in a sense. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, I times like I'll, uh, we need stuff from Alibaba, for example, which I can't, pay for with my grant money at Stanford and like yeah I just buy it I'm like whatever like I would spend this money on I don't know other hobby stuff but I'm I don't really do much other stuff these days <laughs> uh, so like but that's what I do for fun you know I, I um I've been 3d printing things that you know now after this just unrelated things I don't know I just feel like it's um cool to do and I could be spending it on a lot of other things um that I that are just not it's good for your like personal growth like and enjoyment. So, um, what oh, I, no, I get it, I get it. I we have a three D printer here too, and like in my house. And uh, but I use it for more. Like I use it for two things. One, we're trying to develop this prototype for like this. Um, they're kind of like a ring mixed with a chopstick that lets you eat potato chips without getting your fingers dirty but it's like aesthetically pleasing or for like D, &D figurines <laughs> like that's what we use it for uh very different applications <laughs> yeah mine are um, not very now i built like a, a phone stand with a charging pad in it and like uh basically it's you buy the charging pad but then i printed this thing that it can go in and they're really not like things I need, but I, um, I just like I, I, I'm, I try and motivate myself to learn new things this way. So there's like a one you can buy for 150 bucks, but the pad itself is 15 bucks. So I'm like, oh well, I'm not. It's not that I care about saving the money as much as like that money savings is motivation for me to like learn how to print it. And like, there's a lot more pr to 3D printing than I thought. And how do you test certain parts of it? And um, you know, calibrate the printer and it just, you know, I just find those things to motivate myself to learn these new things. Um, and now I also tell my students like in the lab, like, you know, just find something that you don't even need that much. Just like find a project that you, you want to see it done and like try and print something, you know, um, because you kind of have to just start doing it for a project to learn it, you know, just like coding, right? You can't just like follow along um, some textbook. You need to have something you want to build, right? 
Would you say that, I mean, as a scientist, like, I think most of what we do is, it's pretty much a lot of failure experimentally. Would you say that, like, this kind of hobby or intermixing these things let you get some, you know, weave in some more dopamine hits, like, <laughs> as you go through the tribulations of your work? Yeah, I mean, one thing that about biology is, is that you have to wait a lot for results or... Um, you know, sometimes it can be years. Um, there are some experiments I started years ago that are still ongoing, uh, making a mouse model, for example. Um, but these, you know, 3D printing or writing code is really pretty fast. Um, even when a 3D print takes a day and a half, like it's relatively fast to turn around to see what the result is and iterate um, totally. But I think like I try also um, to talk about failure a lot in my lab. So I have like all these. Uh, quotes and stuff I print out and I put up uh, a lot of them are about failure because um, one is just has a negative connotation which it shouldn't in science and I think that people maybe take it as like um, I just say this to make them feel better at first that failure is a good thing but really no I'm not trying to say that to make them necessarily feel better it's it's I want them to start thinking about like failing the right way so designing an experiment um, and knowing that you're not, it, it's not even, uh, intended to work the first time it's, it's intended to, or so-called work because you have to like figure out what's going to go wrong and you can't do that all the time. Like though you can't predict it all the time in biology. Right. So how do you run an experiment to quote unquote fail to figure out what the failure point is? Um, so that you know how to do it the next time where it won't fail. Um, it's just part of the process of, of science, right? And um, I try and talk about that a lot. And I, I think that it's important also in terms of keeping a culture of integrity and like not trying to hide from failure um, and really embracing it. And it's not just in the lab, but it's also in, in life in general. Like we don't really learn much from success I think, like, um, I mean, you can learn from success, but you're, you learn a lot more when things don't work, if you if you analyze them, right? Um, yeah, that's kind of like the guardrails, even, like, from my personal experience, are what actually made things work for me. And I think that's even part of the reason why, um, you know, we work on SciFind, because it's like, how do you aggregate all of that, all of that stuff? Because the, the positive answer doesn't really... It doesn't really guide you into how to do it. The success is not is not where the learning is at. Um, in fact, it, it's kind of blinding in a sense. Yeah, and, and if you do fail, like it's, um, I mean, it's great if you learn from it personally, but like um, other people can learn from your failures too, right? And uh, when you publish an article in Science or Nature or something, like you definitely don't put those failures in there. Um, you know, I mean, you can tell a story with certain ones, but like, there's much more failure that goes on than is um, successes in those projects. But they only put like the thing that worked, and I get it. It's it's out of brevity. Like otherwise, it'd be a, a hundred and fifty pages. But like, um, it, it's important to to document these things, and um, yeah, I think being able to learn from other people's, um, you know, journeys and stuff is is really valuable.
can you share any like personal, I guess, like personal anecdotes or experiences, like where you either learned from someone else's failure or where you were like, you know, just busting your head trying to figure something out? Everyone's got an exquisite moment like that. Um, yeah, I think one one thing that I would say is uh, that comes to mind is like um, is in our paper where we developed this uh, expressing this plant chromophore in animal cells. Um, that was what I started working on in 2007 as an undergrad, um, but I couldn't uh, really continue it. I, I can't remember what year now, but um, basically I started working on that and uh, trying to express these two enzymes um, and it wasn't working, like these enzymes that produce the chromophore from heme. And uh, then I said, well, what if you put it in the mitochondria? Because the mitochondria are like bacteria, and we know that the synthesis works in bacteria. Um, and then the, actually, that didn't really work either. Um, and then I saw a publication where I was like thinking I got scooped because a group basically did the same thing and said it worked. And I was like, what? Like, you know, maybe I'm not doing it right. Um, I definitely felt very upset about it, but then I like I needed I kind of wanted I wanted to use it for something too, so I didn't want to stop doing it just because someone else published it, right? Um, so I needed to figure out why it's not working in my hands, um, and then it turns out that um, it doesn't actually make sense that their publication uh, published work works because um, you needed to put in two more enzymes for it to work. Uh, and in the mitochondria. Um, and so I did that, and uh, it worked. And then I'm like, okay, but then that kind of proves that the other one didn't work. Um, so I, I spent a lot of time failing during that process. Like, uh, oh, I have an even better example related to that. So one way I optimized these four enzymes expressing in the cell, uh, I optimized the stoichiometry by accident. So I um, express, I put them in, cloned them into this plasmid, which is a, a retroviral plasmid. And um, I had not worked with retroviral plasmids back then. Um, and I was like transfecting them and not getting any results. Um, and this, this is four different enzymes on two plasmids. And then my collaborator, who's a viral expert, was like, oh, I see you're expressing those from the LTR, not from, the, you didn't add a specific promoter for that. And I was like, Oh, really? <laughs> Shoot. So I, I cloned a promoter into one of them. I was doing it into both, but one didn't work, right? But So I had one, and I had trouble with the other one. So I was like, you know what? I know that I should get sub-expression from the LTR. So I'll try doing um, two enzymes strongly expressed from a promoter and two weakly expressed. And I got, like, tons of chromophore production. And I was like, great. So now I finally figured out, you know, you need all four enzymes. This is how it works. And then I finished cloning the other ones, so I have all four enzymes expressed very highly in the cell, and I got less chromophore production. And I was like, that doesn't make any sense. Like, I have more enzyme, I should get more product, right? Um, so then what I did is like, well, maybe it's the ratio. So I took the high expressing plasmids, but I transfected different ratios to kind of copy what I did with my mistake, and I, I figured out I got more production. Um, and so then, like, I cloned them all into one plasmid with, and 
a way that would kind of reproduce that stoichiometry and got really high production of this chromophore. So had I not made that mistake of cloning it in without a promoter, I never would have figured out that the stoichiometry matters. And um, it made a huge difference on how much chromophore we produced. Eureka. <laughs> um, I think I, I'm kind of curious to go back to some of the um, optogenetics. Like, what do you think are some of the really groundbreaking like discoveries or developments right now, like potential applications, um, things like that, cost reductions even in the field? Um, I think that like um, my favorite and most underappreciated paper is from 2002 that I mentioned, the light switchable gene promoter, um, because for many reasons, actually. So one, I think it's an elegant paper and it's a plant biologist who uh, from Berkeley, who's just like really wants to study these protein interactions and um, did the classic thing, a two hybrid assay. Okay, these interact when you shine red light, but not in the dark. And they interact, uh, they don't interact in far red light. Um, and they, you know, it was a nature biotechnology paper. So they recognized it as a technology, um, but they were, he was really um, into plants and um, didn't really follow up publishing anything else about optogenetics. You know, he didn't even call it that. And um, I don't know, I just really appreciate that. It's like he recognized that it's useful, published it and just kept going with what he was curious about. Um, that being said, maybe he didn't totally appreciate how big of a deal it was. Um, you know, now it's been public, uh, cited over 700 times, but not as much as like uh, Carl Dyseroth and his paper, you know, in 2005, where they coined the term optogenetics. Um, I think like, in terms of like, what are the, the coolest applications? I mean, they're definitely yet to come. Um, I don't think it's been used too much in animal models yet. Um, it has been, of course, but um, I think that the the temporal control that light gives you compared to drugs um, really is going to be used a lot more. So, um, yeah, for example, like if you want to control a gene with a drug like doxycycline, it can take weeks before it's flushed out of a mouse's system. And it depends on what tissue and all that, but you can use light to basically in milliseconds stop transcription. Um, so I think there's going to be a lot of cool developments there. Um, there is like one clinical therapy for, you know, for blindness with channel redopsin. Um, but I think most of it is going to be a tool for, for studying biology than uh, it is for medicine. Or it might be used like kind of in between. So like, Actually, what I initially was interested in as an undergrad is like tissue engineering. I think that has a lot of possible applications. So you're not doing like medicine in a person with it, but it might help you build tissues or even food, right? Like if you wanted to build a steak, you could like laser print it. Um, so I, I think that there's a lot of applications like that are less invasive, I guess you could say. Um, yeah, I kind of see it going more in that direction. And, and that might be my bias. I am less interested in the applications in medicine as I am in developing the tools that help us kind of tease apart how things work. 
Yeah, I mean, my dream is like, I want that meat printer. I want to make burgers and be like, this burger is 25% mammoth and 50% this, like weird species <laughs> burgers, uh, just for fun. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, people do a lot of like breeding to get the right kind of meat and right fat and protein muscle proportion and all that. But like, it's just, it would be a lot easier to do in vitro if we had some slightly better tools, right? Like you could make the fat be like a total grid with the, the muscle and like, or whatever, you know, geometry you want. Um, in theory, it would be like relatively simple, right? Um, so I think like that's kind of interesting, like, uh, but we're, we're, I think also the cost of it is limiting in, in terms of it being realistic these days but everyone knows those things go down with time, right? Yeah, I think um, the other, we can kind of finish up with a few and I'll also leave the floor open for some questions, but um, how do you, I think, what is your process for uh, problem solving or troubleshooting with complex experiments? Like what does your personal workflow look like? Everybody has totally different ways of tackling their problems, but what do you do? Uh, what helps you get through problems? Um, I think it's it's hard to say because it depends on what type of problem it is. But um, generally, I have to decide at some point whether I have to do an experiment to figure it out or if the answer is known by somebody or somewhere. So like, um, and, and you know, if the experiment is easy, then I do it more readily. Uh, but if it's I, you know, I always say like it's worth it to look around and read things. Um, occasionally I post things on Twitter that will be like, has anyone seen this? Um, and that's surprisingly uh, effective sometimes. But um, yeah, I, I, usually a critical point is like, do I need to do an experiment? Like maybe it's such a specific thing related to my system that nobody knows this yet, you know? And what I have to do is like design an experiment to figure out, okay, is it because this thing is... Um, you know, the expressing when I don't want it to, or is it because of myself, you know? Um, and I hate when I have to do an experiment to figure it out because it's time consuming and it costs money and like it, it delays things compared to just reading about it online, right? Um, so it would be great if I could find something on sci-fi that it's like, oh, well, someone already did this or if I post it, but like, yeah, that's not always possible because like maybe I'm the first one to do this. Right. Um, yeah. And like, I, I think that's kind of the key thing is like, you have to be know when to do the experiment or ask for help, um, from a collaborator maybe. Yeah. I think mech like mechanistically, we see a lot of this, like in the tech community with stack overflow and things like that, because obviously it's a little bit more systematic and engineered. But in our case, the consequences are much, much worse because you can't really brute force experiments within like an hour. <laughs> Let's put it. Yeah. So if nobody else has has stated how they failed at something, you're basically, you know, you're out of luck. You got to do it. And that costs money and a lot of time, you know? Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's sometimes it's good to duplicate others mistakes because you never know. You might find something out, but it'd be great to bypass it when it's um already known um yeah and 
it's a, it's a hard thing to, to decide sometimes, but sometimes it's clear, like, okay, we just need to test this. Like, okay, we can't just do this experiment that we wanted to do. We need to do another experiment and do like four concentrations of this drug to figure out which concentration to use for the next experiment. Um, because no one's going to know that level of detail with, with the genes I'm working with specifically, right? Um, do you think that computational methods might guide this uh, experiments in the future? Like, how much can, you know, simulation guide such experiments and say, hey, we have some certainty that they might behave this way or not? I think it depends. Um, I think with, like, the things I have in mind now, like, it, it wouldn't because you would have to... Basically, the, the unknown experiment, or the experiment to uncover the unknown, is what you would need to do to get data to build a model. And so, because without that, it's really just like total unknown. You know, how do you build a model when you don't know any of the variables? Um, right. I'm kind of imagining that some of it is a bit maybe emergent. Like maybe with the immune system, for example, you might, you know, if a group of cells behaves this way, maybe the whole immune system will do this or something. I don't know. I'm just being naive. I'm not a biologist. A lot of room for modeling to help improve and minimize the time it takes to do experiments and things like that. I just, But at some point, um, you're going into unchartered territory and like um, you, you, the things you need to know to build the model are not known yet. Um, and that's just, and then, right. but I think then you, I mean, it'll inform the model, you know? Um, so it's, yeah, that, that can be from a modeling perspective and from a experimental perspective, it sometimes can be the hardest part because you don't know what the result is going to be. Um, you have to make kind of an educated guess about like, say what concentrations to use and hope that, uh, that range of concentrations is enough to figure it out, um, or at least inform the next experiment. Maybe you have to then do another range of concentrations within that range. Um, but at least you kind of got some idea. Um, and maybe that's where a model could help as well. I see, thanks. Yeah, if anyone has questions, you can feel free to put them in the chat. I'll ask them, give a little bit of time for that. Otherwise, I can shoot some more over. Um, but, oh, if you if you wanted to collaborate with any scientist, um, I guess currently, or in the past maybe, who would you choose and why? Who do you want to collab with? Oh, oh, that's a difficult question. Okay, <laughs> I can think of one because um, I mentioned him already, but like Peter Quill, the plant biologist, because I actually, so I moved from San Diego to Stanford and he was from Berkeley. And I, I contacted him um, saying, like, you know, I'm kind of in the area, and I, I read your paper or papers, like, so many times, and, like, um, I don't know, I just thought it would be cool to meet you sometime or something like that. And he responded saying, actually, he, he just retired and shut down his lab, and now he's back in Southern California, where I came, just came from. And I was like, oh, like, you know, I, I just, I didn't really have a real... I don't know, motive to meet him. It was just thought it'd be cool. Um, but now, especially because he's retired, I'm like, I wish I could get his insight, you know, and, and like, or some ideas, let's tell him what I'm working on. Um, and I, 
totally collaborate with him if he wanted to, like as a retired person, just to, you know, he may be curious to do some cool stuff. Um, another one in a similar vein is, um, let's see, what is his, I, his name in papers is like J.C. Ligarius. Uh, let me see, what is, oh yeah, John Clark Ligarius from UC Davis. Uh, he's also someone who's always been like a basic researcher, um, really biochemistry, phytochrome stuff, um, always published some amazing papers. And, uh, but I feel like he's like one of those underrated scientists who really has laid the groundwork for so many things, whether it's related to photosynthesis or, um, yeah, like plant cell signaling and, uh, spectroscopy, all this stuff. Um, and I met him once, like many years ago, just like I asked him a question at the end of him giving a talk and, uh, he just seemed really nice. And I know he would have so much insight on what I'm working on. Um, but I never like followed up with, you know, that, that must've been in like 2010. So, um, yeah, I think that would be kind of cool to work with him, but I don't have anything specific to collaborate with him on. And I don't know what kind of person he's really like, so I haven't actually reached out to do that. Maybe I should. <laughs> yeah, we need to, I'm like, jump on the blue soup train and create like blue soup chromophores <laughs> yeah mine would be actually the chromophore I, I work with or mostly work with is phycocyanobilin and it's actually cyan color so it's very much blue soup colored um, but I don't think it's why blue soup is blue soup <laughs> <laughs> blue soup yeah hashtag blue soup um, that's my favorite thing right now um I think they re they identified it actually. What blue soup? Oh, really? Was. It has a very oh. it has a very fancy name, um, Seratia something. It was not Pseudomonas. Okay. Which is what people emphasized. <laughs> Spoiler I'm alert. I haven't um, seen that in my feed or whatever because I I was seeing so many blue soup posts for so long, and I was following them. I was clicking on them, you know. But like, yeah, I'm going to look back into it and see what's going on. <laughs> yeah. Um, I'm curious, what are your, uh, um, yeah, if anyone has any questions, you can feel free to ask. Otherwise, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm curious, like, what, what do you see in store, like, for your future? What are your, like, future goals, aspirations? Um, you know, you can dream about it for a second. Um, you know, the I actually, for a while... Uh, I'll put it this way, until recently, I always had the thought that, like, I should keep an open mind, do whatever comes, like, I, I'd like to do this, but then i kind of interested in maybe doing other stuff. So, like, uh, for example, I'd like to have my own lab, but, like, end up going to industry and doing something totally unrelated to what I do now. I think I should be happy with that, too. Um, but uh, I would say in the past, like, year or two, I've really more focused on what I want to do and, like, kind of figured it out. Um, although I still have an open mind about it. Um, and I think that has helped me work towards a goal. Um, you know, after doing a postdoc, you might think I have one very clear in mind, like become a professor, but like, I really wasn't sure about that during my whole postdoc. Um, and, uh, but now I'm, I'm actually going to be, 
assistant professor or clinical educator, assistant professor. I have to put that in front of the title. Um, yeah, like it's probably June. Um, so uh, I kind of have my own lab already now, um, but I it's one of those it's an unusual position. So like I won't have it's not tenure track, and I don't get like a startup package like a, a regular professor. But I get to write grants and um, expand my research with the idea that I can uh, eventually apply for more. Um, like typical, it's non-tenure track, but typical um, professorship where I get my own lab and startup package. So I'm kind of working towards that. Um, and yeah, I kind of wasn't sure about that at first, you know, if that would actually even be possible when I moved here. Um, but now I like, I'm talking with people about it and there's like a very clear path for me to do that. Um, so my goal now is just write lots of grants and publish lots of papers and hopefully I have my own lab in the next like two or three years. Um, but I kind of already do now. I just need to expand my research group. And uh, yeah, I, I, I'm, I can see myself doing that indefinitely um, in one form or another. Um, so oh, yeah. I like working on optogenetics. I would like working on synthetic biology more generally. You know, I like, I'm shifting a lot of interest into environmental, like synthetic biology, um, and, you know, the idea of engineering things that are like producing fertilizer without chemicals and greenhouse gases or dealing with plastic waste. Um, so I'm not only working on optogenetics, um, but I like also building like tools where there's a problem. So like, if I'm doing optogenetics, but I have a whole gene circuit and I needed to put it into cells, well, there's no viral vectors that, I, that are friendly with that. So I'm working on developing new viral vectors. Um, so I kind of like find these challenges based on what I'm trying to do and those become projects. I like building off of that, that's kind of my, my thing. So I don't know where I'll always go, but it, it's kind of usually related to some challenge that I have going on jack of all trades um i there's i'll ask one last question and then we can kind of close it out what do you think is um what are some features of scientific culture or kind of the way that scientists behave currently that you'd like to see improved or changed kind of in the zeitgeist itself what's your take on it um well there's definitely many things but i think one of them um a big one is the, I think I've mentioned this so many times, not just on this this um, chat here, but about failure. People need to know um, that it's just part of life and like how we get things done. And uh, changing that mindset and, and getting people thinking more about growth mindset. Um, because, you know, I, I know we all hear of the, do experiments to figure things out but like it's just like a constant thing is failure how do you deal with that and like um when you don't i don't know when you when you really just reward success you start getting a lot of dishonesty and um you know incentives start to get really um not really healthy you know and 
um, I think a lot of the dishonesty and, and things like that that come from research and science comes from the idea that you have to be perfect. You know, things have to, you have to get straight A's when you're undergrad or whatever. You're, you're, you should be publishing in the top journal and your experiment should work every time. And, uh, and if you don't publish three papers during your PhD, uh, you're not going to be able to have a career after that. <laughs> that kind of stuff doesn't, it's not true, but like, it's just something that I feel like is implied a lot. And um, I think if we also, I think it also affects the way the public perceives us too. Um, they need to understand that like we can be wrong, but it's not like bad to be wrong because we're willing to admit when we're wrong and it's sometimes partially wrong, but we're learning and growing and building off of what we know. Um, so I, I think that's one of the, the biggest things. Awesome. Yeah. It's kind of like summarized in two things. One, don't let perfection be the enemy of the good. And two, good heart's law. When measures become a target, they cease to be good measures. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, but in any case, uh, thank you. Thank you, Philip, for having this awesome conversation. Uh, it was awesome. Definitely learned a lot. Thank you. Yeah. It's a lot of fun. My pleasure. Yes, hopefully I'll see you in the Bay, maybe when I'm yeah. out there. <laughs> Thank you, everyone. I'll be posting this recording uh, probably in a week or so. So uh, I'll uh, populate that on Twitter, and you guys can listen to it after and export it, or disseminate it, rather. So cool. Thanks for your time. Yeah, thank you very much. Yeah. Thank you. That was great. Yeah, yeah. have a great day, y'all.